It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like it. Neither had the storekeeper who sold it to the boy. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence? I'm just saying a coincidence is possible. And I say it's not possible. Where did that come from? It's the same knife. Where did you get it? I went out walking for a couple of hours last night. I walked through the boy's neighborhood. I bought that in a little pawn shop just two blocks from the boy's house. It cost six dollars. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we started the 1957 nominees with 12 Angry Men, and we have broken the good poster, bad movie curse once and for all. Yeah. Because this, whenever I do a cold shot, I always kind of come into the movie going like, oh God, oh God, what if it sucks? (laughs) And like the first 15 minutes of this, you can kind of talk yourself into, what if this movie isn't as great as its reputation suggests? And then the second ballot happens and you're like, oh no, we're like, this movie rules. Yeah. This movie is great. It's the rare movie, I think, for at least this podcast where you understand how it was a great play and why they wanted to make a film of it and also that both of those things are okay. That there's like nothing that you can do on film that you can't do on stage really except for close-up shots, which, wow, does this have a whole lot of them and they are pretty great. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I I was sort of... Talking about this with Nikki, because we watch it together because she watches uh, the good movies with me. We were talking about, like, this version of 12 Angry Men, I'm not sure you could do on stage. Like, the the overall thing is, of course, like, this is this is a one-set story. Like, this is history's greatest bottle episode. <laughs> yeah. I hope you like this room, because you're in it for 90% of the movie, is just these 12 men deliberating in a room. But there is so much cinematic shit in this as they bring in the murder weapon. They bring in exhibits of, like, how the building where the murder happened is structured. Um, and they do really cinematic staging in this very small space. Yeah, it's one of those where it's like, you didn't have to do any of this to make this work, but you said, okay, we're doing a film adaptation of a play, make it a film. But they didn't try to, like, do flashy, weird shit, or like, oh, well, let's have a bunch of different sets, or flashbacks or I don't know like there there are other directors who would not have been this restrained and I don't think would have understood what you could do here with film that you could not do on stage that also would not be distracting or silly or take away from the bottle episodeness of it I really wonder if this was like the first of its kind you know what I mean like yeah. we've definitely Actually, I don't know that we've actually watched any movies that have been in just one room for almost the whole movie. Maybe The Heiress. Oh, yeah. That was mostly in that one drawing room. But even that was like a much, there was much more going on in that drawing room. There were like, there were places to go in that. But as far as the whole like, let's really get these close-ups on individual characters' faces 
that will let us know how they are feeling and thinking in a way that is every bottle episode now that you ever see on television. (laughs) I don't think we've seen that at all before. No, like this is such a, yeah, this is such a leap forward on like using the frame to draw your attention to details, to draw your attention to both details of the performance and just details in the world. You know, I think the sort of most widely parodied part of this is the establishing shot of the fan doesn't work in this room that like (laughs) ends up being incredibly pivotal in this thing. This is also the start of sweaty cinema, right? Oh yeah. It is so sweaty. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Like almost too much, honestly, but luckily we're having a heat wave in New York right now. And we also have had these like thunderstorms that have punctuated the heat wave. And I'm like, no, it's actually this sweaty. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it is one of those things where it's like, I think the way this movie could be insufferable is if it was the tale of one just man doing like long monologues about justice and fairness and the American legal system. And like that's there, like that is our central character. But this movie grounds that so much in so many smart ways. And one of them is, why are these men so angry? Is it because of their like disagreements about justice and innocence in America? No, it's this room is really fucking hot. They're all uncomfortable. They hate it here. Can't they just leave? They just want to leave. Right. And until they all agree, they can't. Right. And that like grounding it in that detail in in something physical and real that you can watch happen keeps this from being, you know, a parody of a West Wing episode. Which it... <laughs> At the at the start, it is kind of in danger of doing. It is definitely giving his, like, let me talk about the beauty of the American legal system. It has to be beyond a shadow of a doubt or yeah. whatever. And, like, how reasonable doubt is such a beautiful thing. And I'm like, okay, like, I'm, I'm with you. But if this is the whole movie... I'm not going to be. And then it isn't. And it's good. (laughs) He does for the first like 10, 15 minutes feel like an insufferable devil's advocate redditor of just like witnesses who can say. And it's only when he goes like, listen, if this is fallen on deaf ears, if this is pointless, let's do another ballot. And if literally everybody votes guilty again, let's do a secret ballot. So nobody feels pressured. And if everybody votes guilty again, then I'll shut up. And, like, one person doesn't. And then you're off to the races because then it becomes so much more than this, like, expounding on the legal system. It becomes this interpersonal drama of how do you win people over? How do these small interactions actually color people's opinions on what the facts are? And, like... It becomes this kind of weird reverse murder mystery where, like, you are learning the facts of the case as they review them. Yeah. It becomes, you know, that's still in there. The spine of this thing is still, like, one man convinces 11 other men to find a person innocent. That is... That's what's going on here, and there's always going to be some one-man-against-the-world quality to that, because that's what's happening. Yes, yeah. But it is smart to not just lean on that button the whole time, to let this expand out and be a character study, be a murder mystery, be kind of political in, in the sort of small p sense of, like, convincing other people 
building not just an argument, but building consensus among people and bringing them over to your side where you go like, now juror number seven's a little bit like whatever. And like juror 11 is seems like they're waffling. That is so much more fascinating than like, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. <laughs> that a little bit all of the like reasonable doubt stuff does start sounding like a civic lecture. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, everything that you just said there, I agree with entirely. It's funny because watching this movie, I was like, this is going to be one of the first movies that movies we've watched that's just excellent that there's not going to be a whole lot to say about it yeah i mean part of that is that it is in this single room there are no costume changes there's not a lot of aesthetic on which to comment which is to its credit for this particular story it's just 12 well 13 (laughs) really because billy nelson is the clerk that keeps coming in and bringing them whatever evidence items they need to review. But it's just 13 really fucking good actors being really fucking good. (laughs) I get what you're saying, because plot-wise, we start with 11 men who want to find this guy guilty, and then the entire process of the movie is convincing all 11 of those men to find him not guilty. That's the entire movie. That's the whole thing. But this is a movie that lives and dies on detail. Yeah. And none of these guys, eh, with the exception maybe of like Lee Cobb, of, of Juror 3, the like main opposition guy, none of these guys ever end up as sort of one dimensional, like, I'm the guy who X. Like they start off that way. But these are all specific people. Yeah. And you never get that thing you often get in this kind of story that has this many characters in it in one location of like, oh, we don't really have time for juror number four. Uh, So juror number four's whole thing is um, that he wears glasses. And that's kind of juror number four's thing. But then he's fleshed out as this weird particular dude. He's the only guy that doesn't sweat. (laughs) in the entire movie yeah i just realized that he is how how yeah he must have that gene where you like just don't sweat very much and like someone specifically asks him about it and he is like so unflappable that they're like don't you ever sweat and he just turns to them and goes no (laughs) and like that's like he is a weird particular dude who is a weird particular kind like he is making a like i will destroy you with facts and logic kind of argument about this yeah i think it's actually really incredible that we know every single character's job something about what neighborhood they live in or what their upbringing was like like something that puts them Mm -hmm. in a context that has to do with like their community and their life experience, right? So, like, you've got Joseph Sweeney, who's juror nine, who's this pastor, and he's... But instead of being, like, very fire and brimstone, they kind of take it in a different direction where he's, like, pretty thoughtful, but also is kind of a pain in the ass about it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, In a way that's really, really charming because he is neither, like, a blowhard fire and brimstone pastor or this, like, you know gentle pure saint like he's a little bit of a pain in the ass yeah 
Yeah, there's just, like, everybody in it has more than just, like, their one thing. Yeah. So, like, Jack Warden is Juror 7 and and is basically like, I don't give a shit, I just want to get out of here in time for the baseball. That could have been his whole character. Yeah. We've seen movies that are less dependent on individual characterization where, like, a second-tier lead that has been their whole personality. (laughs) Yeah, and, like, you get so many angles on this thing. Like, I'm a little bit pissed that the Wikipedia page gives these, like, one-sentence summaries of each of them, and none of those summaries are, like, wrong. Like, calling Juror 12 an indecisive, distractible advertising executive is correct, but he only becomes indecisive in the third act. And it's kind of amazing when he reveals himself to be indecisive, that this sort of like, I'm just going to talk. I like taking up attention in the room. That's how I do it. I kind of razzle-dazzle him. And the, the, the sort of revelation of like, oh, he's just been going whichever way the wind is blowing the whole fucking time is like really interesting and keeps everybody from being these one note things. That pastor who is kind of a pain in the ass is also sort of like a quiet humanitarian type. But then when juror seven flips and flips specifically, cause he's like, it's hot in here and I want to get out of here. So just like, fuck it. The guy's not guilty now. <laughs> he gets so angry. Yeah. And he's like this old, old man. <laughs> You expect it to be a big Henry Fonda moment because like, he, you know, the the importance of the justice system and that it's like this old pastor who just is like, are you fucking kidding me? This is a man's life and you're still like, I just care about whether or not the air conditioning works in this room is like it isn't just a thing where everybody has their moment. It is this thing where when moments happen they are really interesting juxtapositions of these characters instead of like now juror number four has his scene it's like oh juror number seven is doing an interesting thing that makes juror number 10 do something interesting they're all bouncing off each other rather than kind of taking turns to have their big showboaty oscar moment while still having their showboaty Oscar moments, yeah. but it feels a lot more organic. And I definitely thought when they do the first round of voting or the first follow-up round of voting and juror number three is like yelling at a juror two and saying like, oh, you you switched your vote, blah, 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 like screaming at this pretty like mild-mannered nebbish bank teller guy and then joseph sweeney who's the pastor says no actually i changed it i was like oh so this is what we're gonna do there's gonna be these like little interjections and then we're gonna go through i don't know 11 rounds of voting until they all do this and it it's not that while you know you'll have maybe like three or four people who change their mind on every round (laughs) but they still get we still get their full reasoning even though it's not like well now it's time for so-and-so's story which to be fair is a structure that i actually like (laughs) but is also easier to do than what this movie does which is very elegantly weave them all together yeah the only example and and i like it too juror three kind of gets that right yeah like juror three has this book indie thing where he sort of starts talking about the defendant and then immediately begins talking about his own estranged son 
And that, like, at the end, when he has his complete breakdown, that's like, justice for Lee Cobb, give this man an Oscar, (laughs) where no one will talk to him until he just, like, gives, because he's the last holdout. Right. Um, And just, like, tears up this picture of him and his son. You're like, oh, this is a big performancey moment. This is not really, despite the scale, a movie of realism. Like, these are not actors giving realistic performances per se. I would say they're all on the same level of heightened reality, which isn't that heightened. Like, this isn't a fucking superhero movie or anything. Yeah, they are believable without being naturalistic. Yes, exactly. They're all of a piece in the level of non-naturalistic they're doing. Also, just side note, young Jack Klugman was hot. (laughs) I... Who knew? Uh, yeah. I I mean, I know now. Yeah. But I, I did not before. Ed Begley Sr. was not. No. Though he's not even really that young in this. Yeah. He's like in his 60s or something. I don't know. It's definitely one of those things where like Ed Begley, Jack Klugman, and Lee Cobb are all like names I know. I know these actors from work they did in the like 60s, 70s, 80s. But all three of them are like, so wait, which one's Jack Klugman? Like, is Jack Klugman the old guy in the, like, like because I don't quite know their relative ages in the 50s, you know, off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, And so when I'm, you know, like the, the Amazon x-ray thing that tells you who all the actors are really locked in for me. I'm like, wait, so like the hot guy who grew up in the slums is Jack Klugman? Yeah. That's nuts. Did not expect that one. <laughs> you can see like how he ended up being the Jack Klugman we all know from his later work. But it is, it did come as a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Boy, you know, it's wild. Ed Begley Sr. and Ed Begley Jr. look nothing alike. Literally the first thing Nikki said after the movie ended, she just turned and was like, one, that that was a great movie, but she was sort of saying that throughout the movie. And so the first thing she said after the movie actually finishes, Ed Begley took me the longest to figure out because I assumed it would be the one that looked at least vaguely like Ed Begley Jr. And then nothing, none of them looked like Ed Begley Jr. And then the one that looked the least like Ed Begley Jr. turned out to be his dad. Yeah, and, and the weirdest thing about that too is it's not one of those situations where normally you would be like okay well his mom like pulled one over on his dad because his dad is the one who actually pulled one over like his dad was married to amanda huff at the time had a kid with some totally other woman then i guess amanda huff was like well what are you gonna do and so they raised him as if she were his mother she died when he was seven And then he found out that that was not his actual mom. So, like, I don't think that Alan Jean Saunders pulled one over on Ed Begley Sr. Because that would just be too many people doing that. (laughs) Yeah, at this, at, like, I'm not, yeah. Like, this person isn't related to anybody at all. (laughs) Yeah, just has no parents. Ed Begley Jr. was immaculately conceived. Because both of his parents were... I'm willing to believe that because of who he is, but, you know. And then, yeah, we've talked about it a little bit, and we've sort of talked about the downsides of it, but we haven't really talked about, like, the central performance of this film, Henry Fonda. Yeah, 
Yeah. Like I say, the first 10, 15 minutes, you're like, is this guy going to be kind of an insufferable know-it-all that just believes in justice so hard? And the interesting thing is, like, throughout the entire movie, he is still kind of that. Yeah. But, like, the movie seems to acknowledge that, that that is what most people's reaction to him would be. And also seems to, like, really make a case for how this guy would make a case for something. He does so many, like, the cool knife on the poster is, in fact, his first, like, mic drop. Where they're like, this is such a particular knife. No one would ever have this knife except for this one kid. If they're stabbed with that knife, it's got to be the kid's knife. And Henry Fonda just takes a switchblade out of his pocket that looks exactly like it and throws it point end down into the table right next to the other one. I gotta say, that's that was the one thing in this movie where he's like, yeah, I was just out walking last night when I decided to go over to the neighborhood where this murder happened and like pick up a knife from from a pawn shop. Yeah. And I was like, all right, this is a little much, but fine. And then like, as you get to know the guy more, I'm like, no, nah, that dude would totally have done that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it, you're right that like, I do think that I kind of excuse it in the moment as like, well, that's cool. So the fact that the thing he said that to get us there is crazy is like, I'm just going to like, let that go. But yeah, you do sort of get the sense as it goes on of, This is a guy who is actually kind of a devil's advocate by nature, that he does actually just kind of go around and go like, prove it to like everything. And that probably is kind of insufferable in real life. But in this specific case, he keeps making a lot of really good points. Yeah, I didn't really get the impression that he was necessarily always playing devil's advocate so much as he he has an activist streak, which... I can relate to. And I was happy that they made him an architect where it was like a job that that has absolutely zero bearing. That it wasn't like, oh, well, I'm a, I don't know, lawyer or I work for the city or like something that is involved in the legal system. That it was just like, no, I'm just an architect who thinks that, you know, maybe we should look out for the little guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, devil's advocate has become extremely charged and is not the right term for this guy. But that, like, he really is, he's like a question everything guy, but not a, like, I do my own research kind of guy. (laughs) Even though he kind of does do his own research, he isn't just in it to prove people wrong. He is just sort of naturally suspicious of power, which is not the worst, (laughs) like, stance to take on power. And... Really, I'm just sort of trying to get at, like, Henry Fonda does not make this guy a saint, which it would be very easy to do. Yeah. He is still our protagonist. He is still the first person to be right and is therefore the rightest about this thing. Although, interestingly, the movie does point out, you never actually find out whether they're right. This kid could be guilty. The only thing they're finding is that there's a reasonable reason to doubt that. The case has not been made that he is guilty. Yeah. And I do feel like I'm getting a little scattered here just because there's so much to talk about in terms of, like, these very small details that make this work. I love the little, like, 
there is a little bit of movie before and after they're in the deliberation room. And they both have these like beautiful little moments. One is the judge kind of explaining the premise of what they're about to do seems so fucking bored and like so fucking bored by the death sentence is mandatory in this case, Um, (laughs) which is. I had actually forgotten about that because it's right at the beginning of the film. But I did think that in the moment of like, damn, he just seems completely disinterested in a murder case that is going to send a barely legal adult to death yeah the guy who's on trial is 18 and they're like yeah well we might kill him yeah and like even though this works out for the best and like the side of like deliberation and justice wins this movie is surprisingly cynical about the american legal system in ways i quite like like it really does like make it clear like with juror number seven switching sides that like Hey, a lot of this is just, like, people making a decision for dumb quotidian reasons and not them deliberating on the nature of justice. Mm -hmm. That, like, if Henry Fonda weren't in this room, this kid would have gone to the chair because somebody had baseball tickets. And, like, that's dark, but also accurate. (laughs) Like... Yeah, yeah. Well, and and a big part of it, too, is that it's very clear that you know this is an all-white jury and the majority of them are kind of like well yeah i mean this latino kid you know how they are and not all of them stick to that but all of them start there yeah i like nikki called the scene deplatforming works but the one where Ed Bagley, like, finally loses it, because he's always, like, the most racist one and kind of nudges everybody else to be like, huh? Huh? You know how those people are, right? Yeah. And, like, just goes fucking full MAGA on all of them. And all of them, like, live deplatform him. Like, literally, like, turn around and don't talk to him anymore. And it works. And it works. In, <laughs> in a thing that is obviously a little bit wish fulfilly, but I do also think is kind of the way it should be handled more of, like, instead of, like, trying to defeat that kind of person with facts and reason and, like, no, 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 let's, like, work this out in the marketplace of ideas, just going, I don't have time for you. You have your right to say whatever you want, and I have the right to hate you for it. Or I have my right to not listen to your bullshit because, like, honestly, I've already decided not to be a racist piece of shit, so, like, why do we need to work this out in the marketplace of ideas? Yeah. Also, like, I mean, I guess maybe not as much in 1957, but I feel like the fact that we're having a movie about this and and he is definitely framed as being unreasonable in the film... At that point, we had also worked out that, like, being a racist piece of shit was not good, so we didn't need to re-litigate that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It is. It is the way that it should be handled more often. And it is, like, it is interesting, again, that, like, again, this is a moment where you would expect Henry Fonda to come in and do the, like, big speech about racism to, like, put a button on it. And he kind of does. But the one who actually shuts Ed Bagley down 
is the the unflappable guy who never sweats. Right. That like Ed Begley is just like going around the room going like, yeah, you'll listen. You'll listen, right? You, you, you have to listen to me. And he just goes, I have listened to you and I'm sick of listening to you. Now sit down and shut up. And then interestingly, still doesn't change his vote. <laughs> Juror number four is still for guilty, even after he's like, I hate that this guy is on my side and I fucking hate that he's here and I never want to listen to him again as long as I live. By the way, I'm still voting guilty. <laughs> yep. Watching that turnaround, I think actually specifically for juror number four to me is really interesting because when he turns, mm -hmm. he takes 10 and 12 with him. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that he's the one who takes them because 10 is, is our, you know, racist and 12 is, I'm an advertising executive guy who's kind of like a not that bright, um, oh, what the fuck is his name? Why can I, I literally two seconds ago was thinking about him. The main guy from Mad Men. Oh yeah, yeah. Not that bright Don Draper. Yeah. Yeah. Like down to the way that he looks. He kind of looks like like Don Draper, but if he weren't that smart. He has the Superman build the same way Don Draper does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the same shaped head and like they, they look similar. Yeah. The fact that those two changed their mind based on number four being convinced, I thought was really interesting because it's such an example of two guys who seem like they are pretty powerful and are a little bit bullying and kind of pushy 10 more than 12 but 12 also is that way how easily they follow somebody who is totally emotionless in the way that they <laughs> respond to somebody they're like oh yeah yeah this guy this guy knows what he's talking about because he acts completely differently than we do <laughs> <laughs> yeah Oh God! Sorry, I was I was as we were bringing up Juror Twelve more and more. I was remembering my favorite line reading of the entire movie, which is where he makes that says that weird idiom of "Let's throw this out and see if the cat licks it up," and then one of the other jurors just goes, "The cat licks it up," with like such confusion and disgust. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like what? it's like the worst madman pitch meeting he's like yeah yeah let's see if the cat licks it up no so that, that is not the tagline that is not we're nothing. not going with yeah. that no what who's got something else this is fucking terrible <laughs> yeah but it does give you that impression that like his job is just sitting in rooms throwing out shit all the time and people like saying sure that's it or shutting it down yeah and he like even kind of says before that, you know, in a pitch meeting, now would be the time where somebody just came in and said something just wildly unreasonable just to kind of like get the meeting moving again. And you sort of expect him to then do that. And then he just kind of sits there for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> this is a guy who is constantly waiting for a boss to tell him what to do. And you you kind of put that together slowly over the entire film instead of having there be like... That's his character beat. We've established it in Act One. He's going to do it every time you're reminded he exists. Oh, also, we didn't mention that there is a there is some flip flopping. Yeah, he goes back and forth, and uh, God, who's the other one that goes back and forth? When they yell at Jack Warden, when they yell at the guy who just wants to go to a baseball game about it, he kind of is just like, "Well, fine, I'm like, then I'll find him guilty. I don't know. I just don't think he's guilty now. <laughs> Shut up." 
Um, which is great. I, it doesn't matter why I don't think it. I just don't. Yeah. I also really like Juror Eleven, who we haven't really talked about very much. Yeah. I think that that his character is very interesting to me because I love the demonstration that there is no one who is more committed to the American project than an immigrant. <laughs> One, it goes completely in the face of, of everything that, like, right-wing people think. So, you know, I like anything that that's that. Yeah. But also, like, I mean, my dad is an immigrant, and the way that he's like, no, the system will take care of everything in a way that is, like, no one's so much a zealot as a convert. Like, that's my dad to the United States government. And I'm like, no, dad, like norms are dropping left and right it's like no the american system is perfect and will balance checks and balances susan checks and balances and i'm like no (laughs) but i do love that he is like we have to talk about the you know reasonable doubt and and that everybody has a right to a fair trial and whatever else and i i really love that i think that it is um I think that it is a, a charming quality. I also think it is delivered really, really well so that it doesn't feel like, oh, look at the comedic, comedically dedicated immigrant. It's really genuine feeling. Yeah. There is something really dramatically interesting in the moment where he realizes, like, it's not all bullshit, but some of it's kind of bullshit. <laughs> These are not 12... 12- judicious men sitting and really weighing the weight of their moral responsibility. Like these are just fucking 12 guys in a room. And that sort of realization makes him really angry, actually, when he comes to it. Even though, yes, I agree with you that he is the most committed to the American project in that very lived in kind of immigrant way. Even though he initially thinks the guy is guilty. Yeah. And Henry Fonda is less so because Henry Fonda is like, look, if everybody else says guilty, whatever, I'll send this guy to his death. That's not as committed. (laughs) Yeah. There is a level of realism that comes with a level of cynicism to Henry Fonda's character of like, hey, if I can't convince you, then you're right. Let's go to a fucking baseball game because it doesn't matter if I talk myself blue in the face and this kid still dies. Mm-hmm. That is the thing that keeps him from being an insufferably grandstandy guy. Right. Is there's a point to this. And I think that sort of the the first couple of scenes where he's very coy about like, I don't know if he's innocent. I just don't know if he's guilty. Let's talk about it. Where you're like, put your cards on the table, man. Like, like, say what's going on here. And then he does. And it's incredibly compelling. And it's a great performance. But at first, he's just asking questions. And it's kind of like, Mm, don't like that. Don't, don't love that. Yeah, and I feel like talking any more about this movie is going to convince people they don't need to watch it and um and you do yeah (laughs) sorry yes absolutely like this movie is the right kind of small in every sense yeah like it is an argument that films do not have to be big on basically every level I mean, 12 isn't a tiny cast, but it's definitely not a cast of thousands. You got one set here. It's just 12 men wearing the kind of outfits they would be wearing in 1957. It's 96 minutes long. It's a relatively small budget movie. This is a movie that is big from the amount of details in it and not big from Hollywood. Mm. It drives home for me just generally how much like 
Big ages terrible. Well, because you're able to do bigger, better at all points in history. Yeah. Five years makes shit look ridiculous. For sure. Even at this point in cinema history, that's true. When we look at the Ten Commandments versus, like, the robe, or not even that, the Ten Commandments versus Quo Vadis, which is literally five years, and you look at that and you go... Damn, Ten Commandments wiped the floor with Quo Vadis. (laughs) Yeah. Like, this stuff looks silly. Yeah, it absolutely, yeah. It all looks silly, and, like, even outside of special effects, you know, that, like, 20s, 30s acting style feels so silly now Mm. now that Mm -hmm. we have sort of smaller, more constrained acting on a regular basis. You can do that if it matches the entire, like, tone of the film. Like, I would say the acting at Citizen Kane is pretty big. But it, like, it is large in the way Kane is large. Like, it knows how to do big acting intelligently. Knows how to find small moments within that. And, like, this is a movie that knows how to make small things big and how to make them important. And, I don't know, I just, I love it. I love this movie. You should definitely watch it. I do think if we talk about it anymore, I don't want to talk shit about the first 10 minutes anymore, but I also just don't want to give away any more details of this movie. Just go watch the movie. Yeah, just go watch it. 10? 10, yeah. I, yeah. It's really good. It's really good, (laughs) y'all. And it's short. 96 minutes does what it says on the can. There are 12 angry men in this movie. Even Henry Fonda at one point gets mad. Maybe juror number two does not really... (laughs) Um, Juror number two thinks about getting angry and then uh, gets a little freaked out by it, but... Yeah, he he does yell at Lee Cobb at one point, and it's just for a moment. Oh, yeah, that's true. But he he does for a single moment yell at the Juror three, and yeah, I guess that's all there is to say about this. One of several great movies this year. Yeah. Well, so you say. I haven't seen any of the other ones, so we will yeah. one we'll of, find out. One of at least two great movies that I can speak to personally from this year. Yeah. So next week, what are we watching next week? Let me look at my list. So next week, we are watching Bridge on the River Kwai, which is the other one that you can say with certainty is excellent. Yeah. And which is the winner for this year. I haven't seen it. I gotta say, it's quite good. I'm, it's, but I, it has been over a decade since I've seen it. And I remember liking it quite a bit, which is, this is not me trying to backtrack and say, I don't think it's good. It's just my memory of it from 10 years ago is it's very good. I don't know if it beats 12 Angry Men, but I also watched 12 Angry Men three days ago. Right. So it may just be the immediacy of watching a really good movie. It's also interesting in this year. This is the first year we've had where the nominees are really, really backloaded in 57. Like most of them came out in December. Bridge on the River Kwai came out earlier in the UK, which is why we are watching it when we are. But even that was October. So four out of five of these came out in the United States in December of 57. Jesus. Which is now the way that they do everything. It's like, oh, is this Oscar bait? December release. Though that is also a real argument for 12 Angry Men. Because in a year like that, the one that came out in April and the Academy was still like, hey, you know what movie fucking ruled? (laughs) 
Yeah. Is, is usually a really good movie. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, tune in next week to find out if Bridge on the River Kwai holds up to David's memory of it. And until then, God, just go watch Twelve Angry Men. I just like it transcends the catchphrase. Like, just go watch Twelve Angry Men. Bye. Yeah, I mean, it it is a movie. Yeah, though I, I, that's but, not a. But it, it feels like weirdly unnecessary. Like that, that just like. Yeah, I don't know. I you don't need me to tell you Twelve Angry Men is a movie. Like I just go watch it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Bye. This fighting—that's not why we are here to fight. We have a responsibility. This I have always thought is a remarkable thing about democracy that uh, we are. Oh, what is the word? Uh, notified that we are notified by mail to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we we have never heard of before we have nothing to gain or lose by by our verdict this is one of the reasons why we are strong we should not make it a personal thing <laughs>